This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners, and welcome to our Digital Leadership Series. In this series of conversations, we're highlighting some of the best and brightest minds and practitioners in the business as we focus on their journeys into digital transformation, what they learned, what their successes were, what the challenges were, along with lessons that are relevant for you today. We hope you enjoy our explorations and get value from it. And always, we look for your feedback and suggestions. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another Momenta podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. And today, our guest is Rita Gunther McGrath, who is a professor at Columbia Business School. She's got an incredible resume. She's uh, a, a top expert on innovation and growth. Uh, she's one of the most regularly published authors in the Harvard Business Review, ranked among the top 10 management thinkers in the world, uh, ranked number one for strategy by Thinkers 50, uh, and she's the author of uh, four books, I believe, uh, with another that's uh, that's coming, and we'll be talking about that in, in, in the conversation. But, uh, but Rita, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start with a, just a bit of context. We'd love to get uh, you know, for you know, for our our listeners who may you know may be new to your work. Could you just share just a bit of the um, that you know the forces that have really shaped your views on strategy and 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 really what's what's brought you to uh, attracted you to the work that 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 you do. Well, I think when I first started with my academic studies, the field of strategy was very much focused on industry analysis and all the cool kids were doing, you know, order of entry studies and market share impact and that sort of thing. Um, and I was really much more interested in innovation and the creation of, you might think of it as the creation of new industries. And what became pretty clear to me was that a lot of those approaches to strategy, which presumed equilibrium and which presumed stability, were just not a good fit for what most of the people I was talking to were dealing with on a regular basis. And that really got me interested in strategies much more of change and of dynamism than strategies of stability. So I would say that was really, in the strategy sense, where my thinking got started. You wrote a, a, a really influential paper uh, on discovery-driven planning, and and you're you know you're really credited as as the um, uh, really kind of the as as you know the, as the key you know innovator of that concept. Could you could you discuss well, you know, the principles behind discovery-driven planning and and how that work has has provided really a foundation for the you know for, for the work that you you've been doing subsequently Oh, absolutely. So discovery-driven planning had its seeds in a real puzzle, which is that large, established, really well-run companies like Disney, for example, kept getting themselves into these just absolute disasters when they tried to get into areas that were new to them. And we're talking Disney, General Electric, um, uh, AT&T, I mean, you know, really icons of American industry. And yet when they got into new areas, they ended up with these complete and total disasters. And when you study the case studies that accompany these stories, what you find is this pattern, which is a pattern of untested assumptions taken as facts, 
very few opportunities to test things. You know, people just charging on full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes, all the funding up once, you know, at, up, uh, all the funding up front, up front at once. Um, big teams, you know, going after these things. And what my co-author and I realized was that what we were looking at was a fundamental disconnect in how organizations need to be thinking about planning for the future when the future was uncertain. And the basic idea was that you can't plan for an uncertain future the way you can plan if you're basing your ideas on a strong platform of previous experience. And so the core idea was how do you plan with discipline when your main challenge is learning rather than execution? And that generated a whole body of work, which has later, I guess now it's become part of the whole lean startup rubric. Um, a lot of people have taken it now. People have kind of forgotten where it came from and forgotten how radical it was at the time. I mean, at the time, people looked at us as though we had two heads and they're like, wait a minute, you mean you can't plan to the launch of the product? And we were like, no, you can plan, but you can plan to your next checkpoint or milestone. You really can't do much more planning than that. So the, the whole philosophy was have a discipline, Right, but make it a discipline that's appropriate to learning at low cost, at as fast as you possibly can through iteration and testing. And that's now come to be taken for granted as the conventional way we do things, but back then it was pretty strange and pretty radical. Were there certain industries that you studied that were particularly susceptible to uh, to failure by implementing a, a traditional strategy process or planning process? No, it I, I wish I could say yes, so it was confined to you know heavy industrials or something. But no, it was across the board. It was everything from services, as in Disney theme parks, to um, FedEx. You know, they had a thing called Zap Mail, which by now everybody has thankfully forgotten about. To media, we had TV Cable Week. You know, those those were some of the early ventures that we studied. Uh, we had Bic trying to go into perfume. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, you had some real bloopers in the world of certainly of, of chemicals and heavy. Industry, um, things like Hewlett Packard's Kitty Hawk uh, hard drive venture. So I can't say it's confined to one or another industry or sector. It, it's much more across the board when you're planning as though you knew what you were doing when you really don't. Or are there you know, certain uh, examples that have, have stood out of, of companies that have been successful in you know, implementing this approach to, uh, to avert disaster or, or also to you know, be, be willing to, to fail and then, and then move on without, uh, you know, without being sidelined or, uh, or, or hobbled, as it were? Well, I think what you'll find in the companies that have adopted discovery-driven planning, and there are many, that they don't even talk about failure. You know, they talk about, here's our hypothesis, and we're going to go out and test that hypothesis. And then, depending on what we find, we'll continue the course, we'll redirect, we'll replan, we'll do, you know, something different. So companies as varied as Maersk, as Citibank, as, um, you know, pieces of now, certainly this is one of the ways that Disney slash Pixar do things. You know, there are a lot of companies that have really embrace this way of, of thinking. And um, I think the, the 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 vocabulary is different. You know, I think when you think about platform planning, which is how I describe planning that's around things that are much more certain, you know, being wrong is a big deal, right? You're not supposed to be wrong. Whereas in a discovery-driven plan, you don't even really have that concept um, of being wrong. Like it doesn't, it's, it's a useless concept. It doesn't make any sense because the reality is you don't know. So you can't be right or wrong. The data don't exist yet. So your job is to create the data. And so, you know, if you, if you don't come up with a useful hypothesis and you don't test that hypothesis, 
that's failing in a really stupid way. But if you have a hypothesis and you test it and it's, you know, yes, your hypothesis would proven out or no, that's just a direction you don't need to pursue anymore. Well, that's not failure. You know, that's, 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 it's no more failing than a scientific experiment fails when a hypothesis isn't proved out. I mean, scientists don't beat themselves over the chest and say, oh my God, my hypothesis didn't work. What they test themselves on is, was it a reasonable hypothesis given what I knew at the time? And, you know, was it borne out or not? So I think that whole, that whole language almost around failing and, and, you know, being wrong and, you know, all that stuff about, oh, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to try things because we might, we might screw up. That's all part of the world of the certain and the world of the knowable. It, it really is pretty useless in the world where it's all about discovery. That philosophy as well is uh, really baked into a lot of the, you know, the, the approaches of, of, American technology companies and 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 venture capital, uh, but it's not inherent in in many other cultures. Uh, you know, Europe, European cultures, some Asian cultures as well, where there may be a, a different approach or a different view of uh, you know how to how to embrace and accept uh, different ideas or or even the concept of of, of failing at a uh, you know, at, at, at a venture, um, how, you know, how, how, how has this, uh, uh, you know, how's, how's the, you know, the discovery driven model been, uh, embraced in different ways across the, you know, across different cultures in, 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 in the globe? Well, you know, in an interesting way, I think what attracts a lot of what I'll call failure resistant cultures to discovery driven planning is it gives them a different way of framing it. Um, so, for example, there are many German companies just that I know of who have really adopted it because it gives them the chance to apply their famous discipline and their famous structure around things to an uncertain environment and say, okay, let's learn from it. Um, one of the examples that I use in my new book is a German company called Klockner, which really wanted to go digital in a in a big way, but realized that trying to go digital all at once, you know, these sort of all-in digital transformations you read so much about, which, by the way, is another shade of this, right? <laughs> we're going to go digital, but we haven't got a clue how to do it, so we're going to hire some big consulting firm and throw millions at it and hope they'll just sort of fix the problem. Um, you know, it's the same thinking that we saw back in the 90s when people had all these failed ventures. Um, but anyway, this this German company called Klockner basically started with a couple of engineers in the entrepreneurial hotspot of Berlin, and their mandate was very simple, try something, anything that we think could improve the customer experience with Klockner. So it was starting really on a small scale relative to the whole organization, starting with you know, a specific but not specifically defined, like, here's what we want you to do, but go figure out how to do it, was left pretty much up to the small team. And that's exactly in the spirit of discovery-driven planning. Yeah, that's uh, that model is, has been you know, certainly implemented. We see more and more the you know the concept of a you know a Google X or uh, what companies are like Cisco are doing with their with their accelerator programs. This this concept of of innovating from the edge, and I, 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 uh, I mean, it appears to me that the, the, that this this concept has been has been broadly embraced. I think it has. I think because. You know, people have had such dismal results with other approaches. <laughs> I think that's partly why. You know, we've all been through the oh, the innovation theater, and you know, let's let's send people off to I don't know. We'll do a tourism visit to Silicon Valley, and you know, get our picture taken next to the Facebook sign and all that stuff. But um, you know, the the 
I think the real heart and soul of all this is really how do you incubate in a way that is fast, in a way that is flexible, but that has discipline to it. You know, this isn't a license to go do whatever you want. This is a very specific prescriptive approach to let's study how you learn. And by the way, we are financially very disciplined when we do it. So we actually track, you know, what did that experiment cost us? And then the failure conversation gets completely different. It was all, you know, we blew $10,000 on this thing and it didn't work. It's Instead, it's we spent $10,000 to learn X, Y, Z about this particular set of target customers. And then the question's a completely different question. It's, was it worth it to you to learn what you learned rather than did you succeed or not? It's a different kind of question. Right. Um, now, one of the uh, really important concepts that you've, uh, you've been focused on uh, in, in, your, in your most recently published book is the, this concept of the end of competitive advantage. And, and I'd love to understand a bit of, of you know, what, what you mean by that and, and really what the, what the implications are uh, in terms of rethinking how businesses large and small, you know, approach their own strategic positioning and competitive uh, dynamics? Sure. So the end of competitive advantage was really a nod to the prescription in conventional strategy, I'll call it, which said the holy grail, what you want in all cases, is to achieve a beautiful thing called a sustainable competitive advantage. When you achieve an attractive position in an attractive industry, and then you seek to erect entry barriers to prevent others from following you in. And to the extent that you can do that uh, and that there is attractiveness in the industry, in other words, there's demand, uh, you can enjoy streams of profits for a long period of time, which are essentially monopoly profits. I mean, that's that's the, the not, not pure monopoly in the illegal sense, but monopoly in the sense that you're the only game in town and everybody's got to come to you. And that's, that's the dominant thing. And many, many, many of our tools of strategy and our, our logic of strategy and all that industry analysis I was alluding to earlier really had to do with this fundamental concept that you you have this attractive position and you erect moats about it and your competitive advantages last, therefore, for a long, long time because it's hard for others to copy. And what I've observed over the intervening years since I've been in the field is that in more and more parts of our economy, that logic not only isn't accurate, it is actually dangerous. Um, in that people achieve an advantage and they think it's going to last and it doesn't. Um, and so my core argument is that if you think about a, a life cycle view of a competitive advantage, there's a period in which it gets conceived, there's a period in which it gets built, and that's really the different aspects of the innovation process. You think of something new, you incubate it, and then eventually you grow it to be a meaningful part of your parent corporation. Then you have this lovely period of exploitation where you're making money, you know, customers are flocking to your offerings more attractive. That's great, right? But then in any market without a lot of entry barriers, there will be competition. They'll come, they'll come, they'll copy. Even if they don't copy you exactly, they may be able to match what you can do. You know, take Netflix as, as an example that's right now playing out, you know, Netflix demonstrated to the world that streaming was a way that people like to consume content. They didn't like to be tied to a cable bundle. They didn't like to have to, you know, put their 
<laughs> boots on over their bunny slippers and go off to the video store, that streaming was a really attractive thing. Well, okay, other very capable players have now said, ah, you want streaming? We could do streaming. And now you've got, what, like 10 player, major players, plus a whole lots of rats and mice competitors in the streaming business. It's, it's going to be a bloody war of attrition. But it wasn't that Netflix wasn't brilliant or it wasn't that Netflix didn't build a truly remarkable competitive advantage for a while. It's that it's not going to last if others can enter. And so the life cycle of a competitive advantage is it's born, it gets built, it gets exploited for a while, and then it comes under pressure. And now whether it erodes or not is a secondary question. Sometimes you can figure out ways of extending it, as Netflix has, by the way, through its previous two incarnations of life, right? So it started out as a DVD player, then it was you know, moved to be a streaming player, and then it was an original content player. And now it's finding it's being matched on a number of those different dimensions. So the big question mark is, what do they do next? And, you know, we'll see. But the the bigger question, I think, for the end of competitive advantage as a concept is, I believe strategists today need to be very aware of each of those life cycle phases and of the appropriate things to do in each. Because what you do in each phase is completely different. And that's hard to digest for the average bear, I think, you know, that this whole innovation process where it's all uncertain and this is where discovery-driven planning comes in and, oh, you know, learn a little, do a lot, that's a completely different logic than the exploitation phase where, indeed, what you're after there is efficiency and operate exactly and no glitches in the system and no, you shouldn't be wrong because you should know what you're doing. And that, again, is different than managing a business or an operation that's in decline uh, in a healthy and productive way. And they require quite different skill sets. So I think one of the challenges for strategists today is having some familiarity with what's necessary for success in each of those stages. Now, would you uh, agree with the, the the I guess the proposition that the um, that the pace under that under which these cycles unfold is accelerating and you know would that be attributable to technology or are there you know are are, are there other forces at work that have, you know, that have really, you know, resulted in this, uh, you know, in this shifting uh, ability for companies to, to hold on to their advantages? I definitely think the pace has picked up. And if you look at any of the large scales studies that have been done of adoption of major technology, it took something like 60 years for landline phones to become, you know, penetrated in the broad for the masses in the United States, it took um, nine months for Apple's iOS to be adopted by 60 million households. <laughs> you know, so that's pretty remarkable. I do think technology is a huge contributor to that. Um, you know, what digital is doing is reducing frictions and reducing cost and making things quicker and easier that used to be a hard and, and, and difficult. Um, just take something like the direct-to-consumer phenomenon. And we always have had direct-to-consumer companies. I mean, think L.L. Bean or even back in its day, Sears, right? Um, and yet the pace at which a company like Dollar Shave Club or Casper in Mattresses or um, Wayfair in Furniture, the pace at which they've been able to actually mimic an attractive offering that's made by an incumbent and, in effect, carve out whole customer segments from that original incumbent customer base, it's breathtaking. I mean, it's months, you know, not years. And that, I think, is something a lot of people are not yet comfortable with. And so technology is sort of the 
to me, the underlying enabler. But what you also have on top of technology is really new business models. So something like a Dollar Shave Club or a Wayfair wouldn't be possible if they couldn't get huge amounts of their supply chain on an on-demand basis. So somebody like a Procter & Gamble, when they got into some of these consumer businesses, they had to build it. You know, they had to build it themselves. It didn't exist on the open market. Today, if you wanted to put together a supply chain for, I don't know, <laughs> chocolate-covered widgets, um, you know, you could make 10 phone calls and spend a week, and you'd have a complete industrial global supply chain at your disposal um, you know, very, very quickly and with incredible efficiency. And this really upends a lot of the taken-for-granted assumptions around uh, what is possible in strategy. So I would say digital and like technologies are enablers, but the thing that makes it real is the business model innovation that came mm. on top of it. Yeah, you get you get all of the uh, everything is a service models and and the ability to have the subscriptions. Uh, I think you hit on a great point too, which is this ability to have these these dynamic and uh, really uh, extensible you know su supply chains and 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 value chains. It's uh, it's, it's, it's stunning. I mean, when you look at what just to name one example, what Amazon Web Services is just giving away. You know, the, the amount of programming intelligence that is available for free, you know, for any Tom DeGrarities, because basically AWS wants, they don't care what you're doing on their service, particularly as long as it's on their service. So they will do whatever it takes to keep your loyalty. It's, it's fascinating. And Microsoft's similar with, with their Azure programming. Mm. So, you know, a lot of their motivations are... We're not particularly concerned if you're taking out Procter & Gamble or taking aim at Colgate-Palmolive or whatever it is you're doing, as long as whatever it is you're doing involves our servers and not theirs, we're happy. <laughs> you know, it's a completely different logic. Right. And uh, what's been what's so interesting when you look at uh, business models or development models that have evolved, for instance, open source, which has really cannibalized the ability for some of the traditional uh, you know, server players, for instance, we'll say, you know, IBM, HP and, uh, of course, the, you know, the ill-fated Sun microsystems used to make uh, you know, very, very fat margins based on their uh, the, the, you know, the being able to, to sell duplicate servers and, and charge for operating systems. And when you introduced the, an open source model of, uh, for the operating system and are uh, you able to virtualize and, you know, and manage the, you know, this underutilization, uh, under this underutilized resource and then be able to parcel it out to, to customers on, and have them consume it on an as needed basis. I mean, you've watch these margins just collapse and and that brings up this you know this point about the you know the the uh, the compression in in profitability and margins that hits you know that it hits so many businesses right now that's 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 technologically driven what are some ways that that companies that may not necessarily have technology in their dna can can effectively uh, analyze and and potentially anticipate some of the uh, you know, some of the changes that are happening you know in their industry that could be uh, not necessarily uh, you know favorable to their you know to their to their ongoing business. Yeah, and I would say there are probably three major barriers that they wrestle with. Um, the first one is being able to see it at all, and the reason that is such an issue is that. You know, you've grown up in a business and you've internalized all the things that make that business work in your mind and in your operating practice. 
Um, so let's say I'm a, I don't know, mid-market furniture dealer, right? I mean, all of my metrics are all about things like stockouts and time to shelf and inventory turns and, you know, how well my salespeople are doing. And there's all these metrics, right, that have to do with um, I, I have a physical store and that's what I'm running. And so to even see what a Wayfair's doing or what a Casper's doing, you know, that's not even in your world. Like, you know mattress sales are down, but you don't, you know, you're thinking it's it's Joe's furniture across the town. You know, you're not, you're not thinking it's some internet guy dealing with customers through an online channel, delivering direct to them with trucks without the customers ever even trying the mattress out. I mean, what? <laughs> you know? So the first problem, I think, is advantage point one, which is if you're so used to the world the way it is, it's really hard to just get that 30,000-foot level and say, hang on, you know, somebody's eating my lunch, and, you know, is Casper's a mattress company? Is it a technology company? Is it an advertising company? Well, you know, very interesting question when you think about what what is it really. So I think the first problem is the vantage point problem. I think the second problem is that they're so weighed down with the existing assets and all the different accounting rules and depreciation schedules and, you know, all the other stuff that goes with that, that it gets really scary to say, well, wait a minute, what if what if I suddenly acknowledge that, you know, all of my existing inventory needs to be marked down or all the goodwill in my brands no longer applies or whatever? You know, that's really scary. So there's a certain element of denial, I think, that's there. And then I think the third issue I see all the time, which we've alluded to before, is they see the issue, they freak out completely, and they're like, all right, this is going to take $50 million, and we're going to throw it at name your consulting firm of choice, and they're going to fix it for us. You know, without taking the time to really rethink how do we retool our business for the for the next generation. And the sad part to me is that a lot of these incumbent businesses have beloved assets that could stand them in very good stead, but they have to be willing to sell to customers the way that customers want to be sold to. They can't sort of cling to, well, this is the way we've always done it, and you know, you, customer, have to do business with us the way we want, not the way you would not prefer to do it. So I think the better of them have really gotten ahead of this, and they're trying to say, okay, you know, if our customers want to be dealt with digital phone facts in the store, we, you know, we will be present and unified in the way that they choose to do business with us. And we've got to really think about that. So, you know, an interesting case of a company really trying to do that right now is Walmart in their digital divisions, mm. trying to say, let's capture the advantage of the fact that, you know, we're no more than, what, 50 miles from every person in the United States. Um, so let's capture some of the benefits of that. And there are benefits, right? If I need it today, you know, chances are I'm not going to get that kind of immediate gratification through a delivery service. I mean, there are some, but chances are, you know, if I need a cooler today, right, dude, is it really economically worth it to me to pay, I don't know, $75 for same-day shipment, or should I just get it in the car and drive to Walmart and pick it up? You know, and yet, at the same time, if I want to order it and, and have it waiting for me, that's what I want. So I'm, I, I, there is an element of, like, digital, even in that I'm going to drive over to Walmart today kind of purchase. So I think what Walmart's really trying to do very much is leverage the the smarts of digital with the heft of the, the, the physical footprint. I think you bring up a great point with with uh, around retail and with Walmart because you know one of the one of the challenges that Walmart faced is you know it being a pure bricks and mortar retailer 
was that it took them a few tries to to really get the the digital thing right. And, and sure. um, they, you know, would love to get your perspective on you know what they you know what they missed initially, and then they ultimately bought Jet.com and were able to bring in some bring some different DNA in. But uh, uh, you know how how are, how is what Walmart doing reflecting? I would say a you know an evolutionary model of looking at an industry that's that's you know really both being disrupted but also uh, transforming and embracing digital. Right. So I think it's important to understand the context in which digital started to touch a lot of these legacy businesses, uh, because digital first made itself known in peripheral parts of the company. I don't mean that unimportant. I just mean more peripheral to the core operations. So typically marketing or, you know, advertising or, you know, how did you reach out to customers or how did you design an email campaign, you know, back in the early days. I mean, if you think about it back in the day, take the New York Times as an example, right? Um, they still had the paper. I mean, that was the core, core, core business. They had the paper and they had the newsroom and they had the And this digital stuff, well, so what did they do? What most companies did was what the New York Times did, was they created a digital division. And they said, okay, you guys in the digital division, you deal with this sort of disruption that's happening at the edges of our company, but kind of leave the core alone. And so a lot of companies, I mean, beginning with you know, Toys R Us, the New York Times, Walmart, would all be in this category where you know, you usually had a chief digital officer, and that person usually reported up to the head of marketing. They weren't, you know, notice they weren't reporting to the head of operations. They weren't reporting to the CEO. So then what happened over time was the digital uh, change began to spread from marketing to now start to touch other parts of the company. So the first place you started to see it was digital products. So, you know, once you've got sales on Amazon and once you've got Amazon reviews and once you've got Yelp and once you've got all these other digitally intermediated sources of information, like it or not, your project now has digital components to it. And, and whether it's a product, I mean, you, you want to buy a hammer. You go to Lowe's.com or Amazon.com and you look at the customer reviews and your decision to, influ- to buy that hammer is influenced by those customer reviews. So I think the next big wave of digital was really in products that were affected in some digital way. And by the way, this is not my thinking. This is the thinking of uh, Ryan McManus, who's done a lot of work on this, um, beginning with uh, some work he did at Accenture, and now he's doing some independent uh, work on his own. But but he has this notion of in digital, how it emerged and progressed, which I think is pretty profound. So you sort of started in marketing, then you had digital products, then you started to have digital just beginning to sort of rip its way into your actual operations. And examples today would be, you know, these D2C companies. So Casper, I've mentioned, and, and Dollar Shave Club and Harry's, and, you know, there's a huge long list of them now. So the incumbent competitors... And Walmart would be a great example. A couple of first initiatives were, okay, create a bloody digital division and you internet people go and, all right, you want to buy a, I don't know, you know, you want to buy a plastic shelving from through our internet, okay. And sort of they had this grudging kind of, all right, we'll supply the internet division with our stuff. But the real core of the business was still core, core Walmart the way it had always been. But once you started to have the internet be part of how people wanted to do business with Walmart, the existing solutions really weren't good enough. And so they had maybe two tries at this digital thing before Doug McMillan finally said, you know, we've got to get serious about this. And we 
you know, as you said, we need to bring in some new DNA. And that's when they did the big acquisition of Jet.com, and they've acquired all these other Internet properties, so Bonobos and a bunch of other, um, you know, of these sort of direct-to-consumer, very quietly. A lot of their customers don't know that they're owned by Walmart. Um, but they're really trying to infuse this centrality of digital into their business model. And I think that's the part that's just so hard if you're an incumbent competitor to realize this is not just a marketing thing. This is not just an, oh, all right, we'll throw a digital layer on top of an existing product. This is a fundamental reshaping of your business model. And that's where it gets scary and hard. Well, not just a business model, but also the you know the culture and the structure of an organization will have to evolve to you know, to manage these new uh, new approaches and new you know, new businesses. Uh, you know, from your perspective, are, you know, are there effective steps or or best practices that that leadership can can implement to uh, you know to to help manage the you know the transition of the business model and also how to structure the organization you know, optimally to address you know changing changing channels and and really go to market strategies yeah it's a big it's a big transition so as with any other large scale organizational change if you don't have absolute steely-eyed commitment from the very top of the house you know the CEO and the senior team it's not going to work because you know any opportunity the organization has, it will slip back into its more comfortable way of operating. So unless you have someone who is just being relentless about this is the new way we have to do things, uh, it's not going to work. So that's, as with any major change effort, I'm, I'm not saying anything your listeners don't know already. So that's kind of step one. I think step two is you need to be very thoughtful about how you bring digital into the operation. It's usually a mistake to run around saying, you know, the future is digital and anybody that's not digital can get off the bus. And because the thing that people forget is what gives an incumbent any claim to superiority over a new entrant is they've got this rich history, this deep knowledge, this insight, this judgment that comes from, you know, decades of experience. And so let's not lose that. There's still huge value there. And I think one of the things I get kind of upset about with a lot of these so-called digital experts, is it like, oh, well, you know, the old companies just should be thrown on the rubbish heap and it's not worth anything. And that's just not true. You know, what differentiates any old startup from a really skillful, knowledgeable, deeply appreciative incumbent is that body of expertise that they've built up. So let's not lose that, but let's try to meld it with something that is new, that is a different way of working. And so at Walmart, for example, um, there was this quite serious effort to say, let's line up incentives. I mean, a great example of a company that did this really, really well is um, um, Shipstead. You may have heard of them in publishing. Uh, they were basically a whole motley collection of uh, Nordic, uh, beginning with Aftenposten in Norway, um, newspapers and ads and giveaways and blah, blah, blah. And back in the 90s, I mean, they were at this years ago. They said, oh, my God, you know, classified ads, if the Internet can stock classified ads, they're going to do it better than any newspaper ever could. So their their EVP at the time was quoted as saying, um, you know, the Internet was made for classifieds and classifieds were made for the Internet. And so they said, well, okay, if that's the case, why should we make our customer care about whether they get our advertising through print or whether they get it through digital? You know, we don't care. So what they did, interestingly, was they took the head of the physical print production and the head of the, ad, the digital advertising group, and they gave them joint incentives. 
And they said, look, what we care about is whether our advertising customer, and this would be the big advertisers, right, the, the BMWs of the world, we don't care whether they come through digital, whether they come through our conventional channels, whether they come in riding on a scooter and standing on their head. What we care about is how successful were you, the two of you, or three of you, or four of you, at keeping that customer as part of Shipstead. So our metric for you is what proportion of that customer's advertising buy is with Shipstead, wherever it hits us. We don't care. And we're going to measure all of you on it. So get your act together and figure out how to work together because we don't care. You're all going to get rewarded on the basis of that customer's experience with Shipstead. Well, think about how different that is than the normal corporate setup where you've got, you know, you're going to get rewarded on what happens in your region or your store or your footfall. And these digital people are going to get rewarded for what comes through their channels. Well, obviously, that's going to set up internecine warfare, you know, and that's what happened at Walmart for years. People, the store people were like, no, 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 you're not taking my customer. Whereas the Shipstead approach was, you know, that's a stupid distinction. <laughs> you know, what we care about is at the corporate level, did you all working together come up with a great way of keeping that client related to Shipstead? So I think that's step one is figuring out some way to keep your eye on the bigger prize, which is do you really care whether it's digital or analog or footfall or riding on horses or whatever it is? What you care about ultimately as a corporate level is did that customer stay with you? And that forces a whole different view of how you approach your customer. Because now instead of sort of saying, well, you know, between you and me, those digital guys really don't have their act together. Now it's, hey, we're, you know, kumbaya, Hail Mary. We're all going to go in there as a joint force. So I think that was one big break, breakthrough that, um, that Shipstead accomplished. The second thing they started to do is they started to just really expand into and acquire Internet properties. And this is before people realized Internet properties were valuable. So they bought right, left, and center, tiny little websites all over Europe, all over um, the, the sort of Nordics, and and did the same model, right? So so in all the different markets that they went into, they basically said, let's, let's understand what our customer arena is and let's see how we can most attractively position ourselves to them. And they're held up pretty much as the poster child for how traditional media can win in an advertising model, even against you know, behemoths like uh, Google and, and Facebook and so forth, uh, because they took that very holistic approach right from the beginning. Yeah, I want to come back to uh, to the Internet Giants in, in, in a second, but you had hit on a topic that um, I, I think is interest really you know really interesting which is this you know the concept of internet scene warfare in large organizations and that's been a that's been a problem at companies I mean I can think of you know Microsoft was notorious for uh, you know for war, warfare among itself and I think one of the big changes that you know that Satya Nadella has been able to implement is, is much more you know collaborative you know collaborative and uh, you know an in, in, innovative uh, culture where there's a lot more cross pollination, but um, you'd also, uh, I, you know, I'd heard you speaking about uh, some of the work that Alan Mulally had done at Ford, and would love to get your perspective on on you know, I some some of the examples of companies that have been able to you know to uh, to really lead a culture out of that uh, uh, I would say non productive or you know counterproductive uh, mindset and you know effectively harness people to be you know working for 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 common goals in a in a, in creative ways right right i think that's critical and i think with digital the more the more digital you are the more important it is because digital doesn't respect organizational structural boxes and arrows. <laughs> digital has absolutely no idea what those are. Um, a second thing is digital doesn't respect industry. You know, 
d- digital leaps gaily across industry lines. And you, know, you, kind of, you see all these people kind of go, but, 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 but. Um, so back to the leadership challenges. So I'll start with uh, Nadella because I, I just think he's a, he's a real hero of mine. Um, so a couple of policy things he put in place right from the beginning at Microsoft. He said, look, profits and revenues and all those things we look at, those are all great and those are all important, but they are lagging indicators. They do not tell us anything about the future. They are today's outcomes of yesterday's actions. What I want this entire company to be refocused on is leading indicators. And in the case of the online and in the case of the world they're moving into, which is really the world of the cloud, leading indicators all have to do with customer engagement. And you don't get customer engagement unless they love our products. And he literally talks about customer love. Um, I remember I was I was hired to go uh, – you know, give a, a talk at a Microsoft leadership conference and fly all the way out to Bellevue, Washington. And then I'm in this big hotel where the conference is being held. And I race into the ballroom because um, my flight was a little late and open the door. And on this big screen in the back of the room, as taller than me, is this word empathy. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, damn, I'm in the wrong conference room. <laughs> because, you know, if you thought of historical Microsoft, that you could not think of a word too much farther from the heart and soul of the way that company used to operate. Um, but Nadella's point is, if you don't have empathy for your customers, you can't understand enough about them to gain customer love. And if you really believe that that's important, you're going to have to really work on that. So that's been a principle of his. And I think the principle I would extract from that is everybody in the company is thinking about what are leading indicators. And that's what he's paying attention to. Malali, um, Malali is just an amazing, amazing leader. And what's fascinating to me about about his time at Ford, just as an example, was um, he took this company that was famous for being internally competitive and sat all these folks down in a room once a week and forced them to work as a team and forced them to come clean with their problems and forced them to work together to solve problems. And what was interesting to me was the social engineering of it was he let them lead. In, in other words, he provided the structure and the guidance and the, the strategic aiming points. But within that, he trusted the team. He said, "If you, if, if you know, I don't know about design of front bumpers the way you guys do, so I'm not going to get involved with that. What I do know is I need a front bumper that doesn't take too much fuel and that has these properties and that we can manufacture within eight to eight months. And you know, and under that, you you guys with the deep expertise take it. So he was very um, disciplined about enforcing that." team work. A couple of other things that I think are important but often neglected. Mullally had the courage to insist on what he calls good behavior in meetings. So no side conversations, no technology. You do not take phones. Your phone does not go off. You are focused on the moment. You are paying attention to each other. You are there. You know, you are actually present in the meeting. And I was actually at a public speech he gave once um, in a completely different venue. He wasn't the leader. He was just simply a speaker. And somebody's and, – and, and yet several of the people who were in the room were also people who had worked with him at one point or another, and they were sort of talking about their experiences turning around the commercial airlines division at Boeing and then later at Ford, and uh, somebody's phone went off. And the three guys who were there who had, been work- who had worked with Mullally before, they froze in their, sh- in their seats. Their faces went as white as could be, and they're all looking at Mullally going, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Because if that happened in one of his meetings, you would be asked to leave. I mean, you would literally be kicked out of the meeting you know, if, if, that, if you were dumb enough to let that <laughs> Funny. Um, and, I mean, it was a public meeting, so he wasn't in charge, so he kind of swallowed hard and glared at the person and went on. <laughs> but, 
the, the most telling reaction to me was not Mullally's. It was the guys that had been working with him because he does not mess around with that stuff. Um, and I thought that was just, you know, it's, it's symbolic, but it is real. You know, if, if your boss basically says, there is nothing you can be doing right now that is more important than being here. And there is no more disrespectful a thing that you can do than pretend there's something more important you could be doing. I mean, that just sets, it sets in place a whole cascade of behavior that is very different than what you see in a lot of these companies where, and I've seen them, oh my God. You have 12 people in a meeting, 10 of them are on their cell phones, you know, the other two are thinking about something else, and you know, except for the one guy that's up there with his PowerPoints thinking he's got them all enthralled. And he's just like, what a waste of human time. <laughs> Why are we all there? If you want to be somewhere else, be somewhere else. If you're going to be present, be present, right? That's true, and and the digital technologies have have, uh, have really played a played a great role in in uh, I guess de- decreasing the the collective attention span in, in society. But um, but I actually oh, wanted yeah. to. But, think, oh. but when but just to finish on that, though, mm-hmm. I think as leader, and back to your question about mm-hmm. how do you get this common commitment? You know, if you walk into a meeting with the feeling that this is the most important place you could be at this particular moment in historical time, because these people who are with you are essential to your future success, and there is nothing more important you can be doing. That is a completely different mindset than the one I see at normal meetings, which is, oh, Christ, I've got to go to the Thursday update meeting. You know, Joe Bloggs is going to drone on and on and on, and what can I do to keep myself from dying of boredom? You know, it's a totally different sense of urgency that you have in the one case versus the other. Yeah, it's uh, it's being present is a very yes. it's it's a very different approach. I actually wanted to ask about the uh, the how the change your view on the competitive dynamics of the internet giants. And there's been a lot of discussion recently about the outsized power that uh, the social media giants, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter to a lesser extent, um, but you know, but also uh, Amazon and um, you know, and and other very large technology companies that have uh, that have really established dominant market share, if not monopolistic market share, in in some markets. And there's, you know, we're starting to hear a lot of concerns of, uh, that we might need to have uh, intervention on an anti, you know, on the antitrust front to to break these companies up. And but if you look over the past, you know, five decades, the top. 10 companies in the S&P 500 have all have gone through an enormous amount of churn. And uh, I mean, I think one could point to the fact that you do have now the majority of the top 10 companies in market cap worldwide are technology companies. But uh, but if you look forward, I mean, the, the reality is that, you know, the uh, people are looking at these companies as having this, again, this, you know, uh, sustainable competitive advantage that, you know, that can't be overcome but uh, I think history might tell us tell us different I'd love to get your you know your, your take on whether there are some differences in uh, in the competitive advantages that that you know the internet giants have yes so a couple of observations I think the first observation is that our theory of monopoly has not kept up with the reality of what internet competition makes possible so our whole theory of Monopoly is premised on the basis of customer harm. When customer harm is regarded very crudely, very bluntly, as price price competition. So, if you are not raising prices under our traditional 
way of dealing with monopoly conditions. If you're not raising prices, there's no customer harm, so what's the problem? Um, what our theory of monopoly does not do very well is deal with what are called monopsonies. And what a monopsony is, is a competitor, and I'll use Amazon as the poster child here, a competitor who has so much market power that they keep prices so low that they deter entry. And therefore, they're anti-competitive, but they're not anti-competitive in the sense of like Standard Oil, which bought up all the assets and then proceeded to raise prices because they had a stranglehold on the market and nobody else could enter. Instead, what, what Amazon's doing is keeping prices so low that nobody else who doesn't have their scale, their warehousing, their you know accumulated decades of, of computer experience, nobody could hope to compete with them on price. So it's not causing customer harm in a price sense, but it is causing customer harm to me in a choice sense. That um, you know there is no one in many of these markets who can credibly compete with Amazon. Um, and and from a customer, and I you know I, and, and I say this with mixed feelings because I genuinely do believe that Amazon has at its core a centeredness around the customer and serving the customer and you know putting the customer first in everything they do. I, I think that's real. I do not think that's BS. I think they really, really live that. So on that sense, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a kind of, I have a very soft spot for them. But on the other hand, is it anti-competitive? Absolutely. You know, are they, are they, for example, if I'm a conventional book retailer, uh, take Barnes and Noble, you know, how on earth do I possibly compete with that? And yet, at a societal point of view, does it matter? There's a Barnes and Noble. Yes. Would we be a worse off society if that went away? Would the whole publishing industry be impoverished? Would we, as consumers, have much less choice? Would new authors ever get a, a seeing from a publisher who has to take a big risk? Well, no. You know, so there are all these sort of knock-on effects that I think are are really important. So I think the first dilemma is we have this outdated definition of what we should be concerned about when companies behaving in an anti-competitive way. We are concerned about price competition. We don't quite have the mechanisms to think about monopsonistic competition. So it's kind of like. Second thing is um, a lot of these big players um, take advantage of these network effects, which are they become more valuable the more people use them. So Facebook, obviously, the more people are on it, the more advertisers want to be there, um, and and therefore that that makes them very entrenched, and it's very hard for anybody else to break into that up to a point, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But I think again, our regulatory mechanisms haven't caught up to the the you know how do you deal with network effects in in a way that is fair to everybody, and I'll go back to. Years ago, we had what we called natural monopolies. So AT&T was considered to be a natural monopoly. And the reason that was was because investing to provide infrastructure to broad expanses of the American geography was very, very expensive. And so the theory at the time was you had to make it possible for these companies to make those big, big, big investments in infrastructure or nobody would do it. Therefore, you had to guarantee them to, to some extent monopoly profits. And we see the same argument in you know, cable TV or pharmaceuticals or any place where there's a huge sort of investment required and an uncertain profit to be derived. And what governments have said, well, if we want investment to happen in these places, we need to guarantee monopoly profits for a while. Now, with network effects, that's different, right? You don't need massive investments in infrastructure to have a network effect happen. So in effect, what you're getting is the benefit 
that used to happen when people invested in brick and mortar without necessarily having to create the investment, if you follow what I mean. So it's like it's as though, we, it's as though Facebook had a, a mm-hmm. network of telephone poles back in the 30s. And instead of telephone poles, they're Internet nodes. So, you know, I've got the network effect, but I don't have to invest in the infrastructure. So, you know, I, I, I've got all the benefit of it without having to bear the cost. So there's a kind of a question mark in my mind about has our regulatory regime really picked up on that? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a second big question. Yeah. And then the third big question with the way things are regulated right now is a lot of what these companies are trading in, and of course this is talked about a lot, but are regulations around what information is fair game just completely have not kept up with what these companies are trading in. So the fact that I have essentially created the equivalent of Mobile in the 30s as Facebook, but for free, means that you know, I'm getting my money from somewhere else, and we we let this happen without really paying attention to it. So, you know, back in the early days, before the sort of cat was out of the bag, there were there were rules you could have had around right. what you're allowed to use and whose data belongs to who and property rights around it. And that whole thing has just gone completely haywire. And so, I think the third big sort of reason our regulatory regimes have not caught up with these monopolies is that. So you've got monopsony, you got this monopoly without having to have the infrastructure, and then you've got this lack of clarity around who owns data and who's allowed to use it and for what and sell it to whom for what under what privacy condition. I mean, it's just, it's a complete quagmire. Okay, so that's sort of what's keeping them in place. How could they lose it? Um, You know, networks do unravel. And network effects are not always as persistent as uh, theory would have us believe. So, Maybe not so quickly, but, uh, you know, you could conceive of scenarios where – and it's happening already with the core Facebook platform. Younger people aren't signing on. Um, people are a lot more – people – if you look at the younger demographic, um, and I'm talking teenagers and under, they are so much more reluctant to give their data to Facebook than the previous couple of sort of cohorts before them. Um, you know, you read now about children who are or in their 14, 15-year-old – horrified at all the personal information that's been put on Facebook since their birth by their parents. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the reluctance of people to freely give that kind of information is one thing that could start to get in the way. Trust, clearly Facebook's lost an enormous amount of trust. I think that's the second thing. Um, and we could see regulation come down on them in a way that, that you know, the trouble with regulation is there are always unintended consequences. So I'm not an advocate. I'm just saying you could see that dismembering a lot of what they're um, currently allowed to do. Right. Right. Um, so you know, I could see I could see some really interesting attempts made to defang them, and then they could just lose their cool. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, the one the we you know the one piece of regulation that would really undermine Facebook is, and it's been talked about, is if you required Facebook to do what LinkedIn has already implemented and say you can download all your Facebook data and port it anywhere you want. If you could do that, that would be a huge existential threat to that company. Well, it, it, it certainly would be. And when you build a build a business model based on you know, using other using people's data really as the fuel for uh, you know for a different business model. I you know I've been I've read you know Shoshana Luboff's uh, Zuboff's book uh, Surveillance Capitalism earlier this earlier this year, and uh, listened to Roger McNamee when he was coming around and talking about his you know his new book. And, and yeah, there's I think there's a there's a lot of awareness. It doesn't seem that there are there are easy uh, you know any easy solutions at hand, but but certainly this is. Um, 
I mean, if one was uh, had assumed that Microsoft would be in, invincible in the '90s, uh, just as they were uh, battling the and you know the you know the antitrust authorities, uh, and if you were looking at you know Apple and Android, you know a couple of decade and a half later, uh, yeah, it's um, I mean you can you just anticipate it. My a decade or two from now, the the landscape will be will be different. Now, yeah, uh, and I do think the privacy thing is. And I'm not sure what form it's going to take, but um, you know there 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 are rules around this. And you know if you think so, here let me give you an example that comes out of the new book, which is for decades now librarians. And if you think about where did you used to get information, I mean one place you used to go to get information was the library, and the library was presided over by a librarian. And there's a thing called the Librarian's Code of Conduct, and the Librarian's Code of Conduct, which is part of I guess, congressional legislation around librarians basically said, as a librarian, you are forbidden to disclose or capture any information about what resources somebody was researching, what books they took out, who they consulted, what, what references you were asked to help them with, what research you were asked to help them with, because it was considered to be, you know, to know what someone was interested in looking at, and this I guess would be more Google's modeled than, than um, Facebook's, but you know, it was considered to be illegitimate for anybody to know what anybody else was researching because of the danger that it would be disclosed what their deeper insights were was so great. Now think about that. That was enshrined in law for decades. And we've just kind of la-di-da, la-di-da, you know. Mm, <laughs> if Google yeah. says it's all right, so it must be. You know, and so I think right. there's just this huge sort of almost existential question we have. And I don't know. I'm, I'm not blaming anyone. This all, all this stuff kind of took everybody by surprise. I took it to Google by surprise. I mean, I think if you said to them yeah, when they got no. started, this would be where and it's, it would And be. it's all free, too. So, yeah. I mean – they they weren't uh, they weren't taking money from people so it's yeah it's become a, a very different model so it's interesting um, though isn't it though that that was what the librarians were those were the rules uh, I, I think I happen to think that's really yeah I mean if there was if there was a way to really in, uh, <laughs> implement some sort of uh, you know, some similar principles at least that that would that would protect people's privacy I think that would be uh, that would be a step in the right direction. So, um, I, I, I wanted to, um, be, you know, before we run out of time, I, I, I really wanted to get to your new book, Seeing Around Corners, and would love for you to share the uh, the thesis and, and and some of the key points. And I I see that it's coming out in uh, it, it'll be out in September, and you know would love you know, love to get your your thoughts on on the book. Oh, delightful. So the book is around, the book is called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And the core thesis is that inflection points, which represent a moment when the rules of the game change. So an example would be the advent of these direct-to-consumer companies on top of a conventional retailer. You know, the rules changed. It didn't used to be it was safe or economical to reach a million customers all by yourself without going through, you know, a third-party retail outlet. Today it's possible. So that's an example of an inflection point. It changes the assumptions that your business is based on. And so the book is about three things. How do you spot them? So the first part of the book is where, how do you put yourself in a position to see where they're coming? The middle part of the book is how do you decide what to do about them? And the whole discovery-driven idea actually comes back into its own right then and there because a lot of this is really new. So we don't know the answer. We have to go find it out. And the third part of the book is having decided what you're going to do, how do you now bring the organization with you? 
uh, because it's not enough to know that it's coming, and it's not enough to say, oh, this is where we should go. You know, there's a whole group of people who have to agree and be brought along and mourn what used to be and prepare themselves for what is to come, and there's a whole lot to it. Um, so the the book really proceeds in those um, modules. Now, the thing about an inflection point that I find particularly fascinating is it's neither good nor bad. If you see it and you mobilize your organization to capitalize on it appropriately, it can take your business to new heights. If you avoid it or miss it or are in denial that it's happening, it can cause your organization to founder. So it's not good or bad. It's how you play it, which is why, as a strategist, that strikes me as just so interesting. The other thing that I think is important about the book uh, is that these things don't happen overnight. They feel as though they do when they finally make themselves known, but usually they've been brewing for a long, long time before they actually show up on your doorstep fully formed. Um, I was on a panel the other day. Um, oh, by the way, you mentioned Scott Anthony. I was on a panel at Insight's CEO Summit um, with Marie White, who is the head of IBM's blockchain um, division, I guess it is, a small division of IBM that does blockchain stuff. And she pointed out, she said, you know, the first blockchain transaction was 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, And we've forgotten that. Like, we've forgotten this thing has been around for a decade, and we're only now beginning to see the actual commercial applications beyond cryptocurrency, the, the actual business-to-business -business ecosystem applications that are going to make this thing a real force in our lives. And this is a decade. You know? So the the kind of overarching theme of the book is if you see it in time and are prepared to take action in time, you can actually benefit from these inflection points. It doesn't happen overnight, more or less. I mean, sure, there are tsunamis, there are things you can't anticipate, but most of the stuff in business you can get a sense for well before it actually turns up on your doorstep. No, it, it sounds fascinating, and uh, I've pre-ordered it. We're gonna, we'll, we'll put the uh, the link to the uh, to your books in the show notes. Um, so, for you know, for our listeners, if, if there are there, uh, you know, any resources that you can uh, direct us to if they want to learn more about uh, about your work and and your thinking. Oh, absolutely. So I have a monthly newsletter that everyone can subscribe to. It's free. And what I do each month is I take a different sector of the economy and look at what the inflections points might be that it needs to think about. So I've done construction and packaging and consulting and a whole variety of different things. We've looked, we've had one newsletter that looked at the direct-to-consumer model. Uh, so I've got, you can subscribe to the coming ones. So you just uh, go to readamagraph.com slash newsletters and put your name in and I will send you the newsletter. We do not use that list for anything else. So you're your, your email is safe with me. You're not going to get spammed by all kinds of things because that would really be bad for my reputation. So I'm not going to do that. Um, so you get the monthly newsletter. That's one. The also There also is an archive uh, of all the past newsletters, and I've been running, writing them now for four or five years. So that's just at readamagraph.com, which is my website. And you can browse along the topics I've dealt with in the past. So things like um, big food and uh, you know the, the power business and all, kind, all kinds of different sectors. So if you have a sector interest in might be worth browsing around there. Um, the book is, as I said, coming out September 3rd, and there are going to be all kinds of newsletters and other bits of information that come out with it. And it has its own website, which is called seeingaroundcornersbook.com. And there will be more resources we'll be putting up. We'll be putting up interviews. So lots of other things uh, to come as the book comes into the world. 
Well, terrific. I'm excited to read it and uh, you know, really, really thrilled that you were able to take this, uh, this time to, to speak with us. It was, it's been fascinating. And, and we, I, I, I realize that we barely even scratched the surface of a lot of these topics, but uh, it's, you know, it's really, these, these are incredible times and, and uh, really, you know, really uh, appreciate your, the, the work that you're doing and, and the thought you know the 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 uh, you know the insights that you're providing that are really helping you know helping people navigate. Thank you so much. That's really great to hear. Great. Well, the, this has been uh, another Momenta podcast, and our guest has been uh, Rita McGrath, who's the pro- a professor at Columbia Business School, and uh, this again is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. Please look for any uh, of the links that um, were mentioned here on the uh, in the show notes, and please contact us if you have any further questions. Thanks again, Rita. Thanks so much. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, with an episode of our Digital Leaders series. Please check our website at momenta.partners for archived versions of prior podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digitization journey. 